this is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 10, dated June 11th in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about God's plan for you. Psalm 114 is a great reminder of the extremes to which God will go to glorify you. It'd be a shame to get in his way. I've been reading Start With Why by Simon Sinek, and I'm more convinced than ever that a large number of Christians have absolutely no idea what it means to be a Christian. I've been hearing Kawhi Leonard, one of the best basketball players in the world, has had trouble relating to teammates who needed help. I can relate to him. Sort of. I've been playing Wingspan, and if you don't think artwork is a significant element in board games, this game will change your mind. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. I'd like to read Psalm 114 with you here today on the podcast. It's not long. Read with me if you would. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lands. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Psalm 114 is one of many psalms in this section that uses a lesson of history to illustrate for the people of the psalmist day later on in Israelites' history, how God had been with them in times past and how he would continue to be with them in the future. Many of these psalms date to the restoration in the days of of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, uh, a chastened nation, a nation that had come back from 70 years of captivity in Babylon that had almost been destroyed. And now they were rebuilding. And rebuilding basically on the same faith that had characterized Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in times past, Moses, David, all these greats that they had known about. And connecting them to their history was a great way of illustrating to them how God was genuinely interested in their lives, that he had a plan for them, that he was determined to accomplish his plan in their lives, just as he was with the people of the wilderness in Moses' day. And that's an important lesson for all of us to understand as God carries us through this life into this future that he has for us. And God is just as determined to accomplish his will in our life as he was to accomplish his will in the lives of the people who were reading this psalm back in the day and the people who were wandering in the wilderness in the days of Moses. It's the same God and to a very large degree it's the same plan. God wants to take us from point A to point B. That was true in a physical sense in times past, and it's always been true and certainly is true today in a spiritual sense. And when God is doing this, we can either 
live by faith and look to the promise that he has given to us on the other side of Jordan. Or we can live in the flesh and we can obsess over the difficulties and the hardships and the challenges that confront us while we're here in the wilderness. And those difficulties are real. They are absolutely real. There are physical barriers. There are emotional barriers. Sometimes there are political barriers that stand in our way that are keeping us from getting to where we want to go. And none of these barriers are more powerful than God. That ought to stand to reason. We ought to accept that without even thinking about it. Surely God is more powerful than anything that might come between us and his future. That he has destined, predestined for us. This is what he's determined to accomplish in us. And that he will accomplish in us. Nothing can stand in his way. What an amazing concept that is. The earth trembling before him, the text says in verse number 7. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord. Or we might say, if you prefer, tremble, O world. Because oftentimes earth and world are used more or less interchangeably. And world, especially in the New Testament, is used to refer not only to the physical world that we're in, but especially the sinful elements of that world. The sinful powers in that world that are trying to give an alternative to try to stand between us and God's future for us. It's a laughable concept when you think about it. In fact, God laughs at it. Psalm 2 verse 4 in the context of how he is going to establish his anointed as king of kings. And that people are going to try to stand in his way. Keep this from happening. How ridiculous is that? God laughs at such things, the text says. And then goes and does exactly what he has always promised that he is going to do. What an incredible, encouraging thing it should be for us to know that God will and is determined to accomplish his plan through us. The faith that he has given to us is the victory that will overcome the world, the text says in 1 John 5 verse 4. But that brings up the one exception to this rule. No, there is nothing in the world that can stop us from accomplishing his plan in us. But there is one thing that can stop that plan, and that is we ourselves. That great context in Romans 8, verses uh, 38 and 39, where nothing is going to stand between us and the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. If you will look and examine that text, the things that are inside of yourself, your own character, your own choices, your own free will, that is not listed in that passage. As determined as God was to accomplish his will in the people of God in the wilderness, he did not, and he could have done this, he did not grab them with his giant claw and pick them up out of Egypt and drop them into the land of Canaan. He did not do that. He gave them a path and he said, walk. And an entire generation chose not to do that. We can make that same choice. It is imperative that we have more faith than that, that we have confidence in God. And I am, I'm telling you, the more you focus on what God is doing for you and the less you focus on the things that the world is trying to do to stop him, the absolutely futile efforts that they are engaging to try to stop him from doing these things, the more you focus on God and the less you focus on your problems, the easier it's going to be for you to see yourself not only successful in this life, but successful eternally. See that plan of God accomplished already in you. The victory has already been won. The text tells us that in the New Testament over and over again. It's just a matter of whether we can, in fact, overcome, see the battle through to the end, have enough faith to bear with God as he is slowly but surely accomplishing his will 
in the life that we're living in his service. It's a glorious reality that will be ours if we allow him to do what he has promised to do. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. Let me ask you a direct question. Why are you a Christian? I mean, I'm assuming that you're a Christian if you're listening to this podcast. If you're not a Christian, by all means, let's have that conversation. Reach out to me on Facebook or HalHammonds.com. Be glad to talk with you about that. But I'm assuming if you're listening to this, if you saw this podcast out, it's because you consider yourself to be a Christian. Well, consider why. That may seem overly simplistic, but bear with me on this. It's a question that I have been asking myself incessantly since I picked up Start With Why by Simon Sinek, a book that everybody else in the world seems to be reading, at least a lot of my preaching brethren seem to be. And I've been following Simon Sinek and his work for, for a while now. I look at his, uh, his videos, uh, subscribe to his podcast and, and things of that nature. Uh, Simon Sinek is a, a lecturer. Uh, he, his TED Talk, last I heard, was the most viewed TED Talk of all. Very popular. He he goes around and talks to Microsoft and Apple and IBM and places like that, and tries to encourage them to get the most out of their of their employees to build better management strategies, especially with regard to dealing with with uh, the younger generation, which is presumed to be problematical and, and things of that nature. He's acquired quite a reputation for himself, and most of it is based on this book that he wrote a few years ago. Start with why he has other books since then, but this is really where he he made his reputation with the golden circle that he illustrates in Start With Why. And the golden circle, if you don't know, is is his philosophy of how better decisions are made and, and better worldviews are formed. Instead of thinking about what we do and then formulating our plan around that, rather you start with why it is that you want to do it in the first place. Do you consider yourself to be a, a forward-thinking company? Do you see yourself as, as a world changer? Are you out to, to enhance people's lives, however it happens to be. We used to talk about mission statements a lot in, in the corporate world, and we don't hear about mission statements very much anymore. But, but that's basically what we're talking about, is forming a core concept of who you are as a corporation or as an individual, however you want to be applying the golden circle in your life. And starting with that why, then branch out into how you would go about accomplishing that plan and then that manifests itself kind of naturally into what you actually wind up doing or selling or making or whatever. And it's a corporate strategy. That's what it's designed to do. But his thinking is that this probably is going to translate into other areas. And I have found in my walk with Christ that this philosophy has formulated in my mind and, and codified, if you will, a nagging doubt or or question or or concern that has been in my mind in a vague sort of sense. I'm not as clever as, as Mr. Sinek is to actually put it into words, but this is what I've been concerned about in a nutshell over the last several years, really. As I grow in my faith and my understanding of God's will and my efforts to uh, carry it out in my life and encourage other people to do the same, I have feared for a long, long time that there is an entire generation and maybe multiple generations of people who call themselves Christians who really at their core do not understand what it means to be a child of God, 
who don't understand what it means to be a Christian. They are going through the motions, especially people like me, people who had parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents who were Christians who never knew any lifestyle other than this lifestyle. They've been going through these motions, consciously or unconsciously, for a long, long time and never left this environment because there was never any reason to leave the environment. But there was also not really a compelling reason to stay. And when children are brought up in this kind of environment and they are given reasons to leave and they do not have a compelling sense of who they are as a Christian, the tendency oftentimes is for them to leave. And I think that is one of the reasons why a lot of our young people in this generation and a lot of people in my generation, frankly, have abandoned faith, have left the Lord. And if not completely and totally abandoned, at least they have rendered their service to God, if you wouldn't even call it service, a, a shell, a sham, really, of what the New Testament talks about. And no amount of talking is going to change that. The problem is they never really formulated a why in the first place. They never understood what it means to be a child of God. Now, we as as Christians, uh, my my generation of Christians, in, especially in churches of Christ, we have been adept and skilled and, and considered ourselves adept at explaining the what what it means, what do you do, baptism for remission of sins, organization of the local church, and things of that nature. The nuts and bolts of what the Bible actually teaches. This is what a Christian does. This is what you do to become a Christian. And we've excelled at that, I believe. I believe I've excelled at that, mimicking the things that I was taught by my parents and, and by great teachers that I've known growing up. Nothing wrong with what. We absolutely need the what. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. And then sometimes, if we are practically inclined, and I've always been practically inclined, we have had teachers who have tried to emphasize a little bit more of the how, how we exactly exemplify these what's. How, how do we go about not only becoming Christians, becoming better Christians? How do we put the word of God to work in our life? Not just what it teaches, but what it teaches me, what it means to me on a daily basis. How we go about living actual lives as Christians. An important concept. We need the how, just like we need the what. But I greatly fear that we have either accidentally or even deliberately avoided the why. We've thought that if we manage to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, then we've done what we need to do and we can just kind of stop it at that. And I gravely fear that not pursuing these things in a more in-depth way than that, not examining it more carefully than that, has left us woefully short of what we need to be as Christians. I'll answer the question for you. This is why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because Jesus is Lord. And that's it. Everything radiates out from that. This is why I read my Bible. This is why I strive for holiness in my life. This is why I tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord of my life, that means I don't have any reason to force myself on anybody else. I don't have any reason to promote myself on my own personal agenda or even have a personal agenda. It's all about him. It's all about what he is doing in my life. And I'm trying more and more in my teaching to, to emphasize this, not just getting people to convince, to be understanding what the Bible teaches, but what it means to be a Christian. Why are you doing this? Why are you showing up every Sunday morning? Why are you reading your Bible? Why are you singing these songs? Because if Jesus isn't Lord... It's only a matter of time until you find some other Lord. 
And if you forget who your Lord is, it's going to come eventually a time and an opportunity for you to put somebody else in his place. What we have to do is emphasize his lordship. And the more grounded we get in that, the more centered we get in that, the easier it's going to be to get the what and the how correct. When Paul says, uh, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4, he's, he, that's not make sure that you got all the way wet or make sure that you read your Bible every day. That's make sure that you're in the faith. That's what he says. Make sure that you are, in fact, a Christian, that you are devoted to his things, that Jesus is Lord in your life. And I assure you, if you get that right, if every decision in your life is predicated on the idea that Jesus is Lord, the nuts and bolts are going to take care of themselves. You're not going to have to be convinced to read your Bible. You're not going to have to be convinced to attend worship services. You're not going to have to be convinced to live a moral life. You're going to want to do that because that's what Jesus' Lordship means in your life. And you wouldn't have it any other way. Start with why. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. So apparently the Toronto Raptors are good this year. What's going on with that? Take a decade off of following the NBA and who knows what's going to happen. I was just getting around to the idea that Golden State was good. Or that Dale Curry might have a son even better than he was. Needless to say, I'm not necessarily the biggest NBA fan in the world, or at least not anymore. I was when I was growing up. But I do follow sports in a general sort of sense, and I recognize names like Kawhi Leonard. And I was just reading a story about Kawhi Leonard recently, the star of the Toronto Raptors, and how he had a tough time in college with the idea of help defense. It's, it's a problem that a lot of stars, I think, have trying to relate to, you know, the mere mortals, as it were. Apparently, uh, Kawhi Leonard was told that he needed to come off of his... Help defense, by the way, in case you don't follow basketball, even follow it less than I do. Help defense, basically, is when you come off of your man to go guard somebody else. Uh, Typical defense in basketball is man-to-man. I got him, I got him, I got him, like you do on the playground. And occasionally... You get beat. Your man gets past you. And if nobody comes to help, then he's probably going to score. And so it's assumed that somebody is going to come off of their man and help you guard your man. Well, Kawhi Leonard had a problem with that. He said, why didn't he just guard his man? I'm guarding my man. Why didn't he just guard his man? Why should I have to help? Well, gradually, of course, he came came around to the idea that not everybody who plays basketball is Kawhi Leonard. The, this is... Uh, He's a rather remarkable specimen. It was back in college and still is, evidently. And now, of course, he's come around to the idea. Even people like Kawhi Leonard are going to need help from time to time. It's, it's part of being in a team, going where you're needed, accepting help, offering help. It's, it's part of that environment that we have. And certainly we, as the people of God, uh, should consider ourselves to be a team or a body or a a family, whatever kind of image that you want to use, many of which are rooted in the Bible itself. It reminded me of Galatians chapter 6 and that, that odd 
paradox, if you want to look at it that way, where we're told in verse number two that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then in verse number five, just three verses later, we're told everyone must bear his own load. And depending on the version, you may even have the same word in verse five as you had in verse two. Now, there are different Greek words, and the reason is there are different concepts there. There is a very real sense in which we help one another with our burdens, and there is a very real sense in which we accept responsibility ourselves, and we have to know the difference. In fact, there are three burdens that the New Testament talks about. The New Testament talks about a burden of guilt, a burden of sin, that cannot be shouldered on our own. We have to allow Jesus to, to take that. We have to surrender that burden. We're not capable of carrying it ourselves. And there's also a burden of responsibility that is given to each one of us. Uh, the responsibility for our own actions, our own uh, duties that are given to us, and we cannot share those. We have to bear those burdens. That's, that's ours to bear. We're going to give account for the things that we did in the flesh. And uh, that is not going to be done by anybody else. We're not going to get into through heaven's gates uh, in somebody else's backpack. We're going to have to do this on our own. And there is also a burden, like in Galatians 6 and verse 2, that can be borne. In fact, that it must be shared with other people and that we have to be willing to share in their burden as well. It's part of being a community, part of being a family of God. And as, as basic as this is, as central as it is to our workings with Christ, I think we get very, very confused about these burdens. The, the burden that Jesus is and only Jesus is able to bear. We're just determined to bear that burden ourselves. Uh, I, I am going to prove to myself so worthy and, and so good and so outstanding in God's service that God's going to look at me and, and value me and credit me like the, the Pharisee in the parable in Luke chapter 18. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes that all that I possess. Look at me, look at me, look at me. We're just determined to bear that burden. We cannot do it. We have to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt us in due course of time. That's the only way this burden is ever going to be born. We cannot die for our own sins. At least we certainly hope we're not going to die for our own sins. And the burden of responsibility that we have to bear ourselves, this is the burden that we want to, to share with other people. We want to say, well, I, I would do it if the preacher were doing a better job or if uh, we had better elders, if I had better parenting or if the government would provide a better environment. If, if somehow or another other people would do their job better, I would be able to do my job properly. And, and that's the wrong way of looking at it. We have to bear that responsibility. I and I alone are, am going to be responsible for the, the way I answer in judgment. And the, the work responsibility that we are told over and over again to, to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to get in there and help with the work. That's the burden that we want to surrender. I, I can't do that. I'm like the, uh, the, the people who were asked to come to, to the dinner party that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 14. I've got uh, land that I need to see. I have uh, oxen that I need to supervise. I have a wife I need to tend to. Uh, I, I'm not going to accept this responsibility. I'm not going to accept this, this role in, in the, the dinner, in the participation of, of God's things. I, I'm going to shun that. I'm going to push that off to somebody else, maybe some other time. And that shows that we have no idea of what this burden is. We don't know what it means to help or to be helped. And what we need to do is, is go back to the, the basics of understanding what God's will is for our lives and what is our responsibility and what is not our responsibility, what we can do, what we must do, what we cannot do. And accept the idea 
that there is help out there, that Jesus can and will help us when we need it, because we all need it. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ that can help us in our day-to-day activities, because we all need it. And that I alone am going to be responsible for my standing before God. I need accountability. Knowing the difference between the help that we have to get, the help that we are never going to get, and the help that we have to supply to somebody else is going to help us be a functioning and participating part of this team that is trying collectively to help us all individually receive the prize at the end of the story. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But, if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. If your idea of board games is limited to games like Monopoly or Sorry or Aggravation, then this point may be lost on you. So I need you to bear down with me a little bit here. You can actually enjoy looking at a board game like it were a piece of art or something. There are board games that are attractive because of their artistic value. Kind of like if you were to look at a painting because it's beautiful or look at a flower bed because it's beautiful or look at a sunset or sunrise because they're beautiful. You can look at a board game like that. There are ample board games out there that allow you that opportunity. I could give you a list of them. But uh, I'll, I'll save you the trouble and I'll tell you what the most beautiful one is. In my mind, anyway, the most beautiful one on our bookshelf, certainly, is a game called Wingspan. And it is all the rage these days. It may be difficult for you to find at your local game store, uh, even if you have one that stocks these kind of games. Wingspan is flying off the shelves. Pardon the expression for a game that's about birds. But in large measure, it's because it is so amazing to look at. In every little detail, even the box cover, where the, the tail of the scissor tail on the on the bird, on the bird there, the, the tail is is half over the words and half behind the words. It's it's this incredible little bitty three D touch that it is not necessary that doesn't enhance the game at all, and you may not even notice it by looking at it. But there are all these touches in this game that are just amazing. The the little eggs that stand up on their end that that stand for you know a piece of the game. It could have been cubes, but they used eggs instead. They colored the eggs all kinds of different colors. Why? Just because it looks better. The blue eggs, green eggs, the pink eggs, it doesn't make any difference. But it looks better because they're multicolored. That's the kind of detail that Wingspan gives you. There's a, a dice tower, which they didn't have to give you, and they give it to you, and they dress it up to look like a little birdhouse. It's an amazing thing to look at. And, of course, you're, you're paying for this. It's a little bit more expensive to have art like this, to have details like this, but you're willing to pay it because it's such a joy. Before you're even fully getting it out of the box, you're already enjoying yourself. But surely the most impressive artwork in this game is the, the cards that have the pictures of birds themselves. 170 different birds are represented, North American birds represented on these cards. And I'm not going to get into the details of how the game works. Look, the game is a lot of fun. 
I, I encourage you to go ahead and play it. It's not very difficult. If you're used to board gaming, you might enjoy this one. But I guarantee you'll enjoy looking at it. And I, I, it strikes me, it strikes me that the most attractive part of this game is the part that looks the most like the things that God made. And I, I don't think that's an accident. Maybe I'm, I'm seeing what I want to see in this. I don't know. But the glory of God's creation is always going to be the most spectacular thing that you're ever going to see. And not everybody uses this as an opportunity for faith. I get that. You have to want to have faith if you're going to look for something like this. But I assure you, if you're inclined at all to consider the idea of a benevolent, all-powerful God who made us and who made the world that we're living in, if you look at birds, you see the hand of God. It's an amazing, amazing thing. It's no accident that birds are featured prominently in the book of Job when God is defending himself, as it were. Maybe not defending himself, man, that's not the right choice of words, but, but explaining why it is that Job is so out of line, finding fault with his maker, as it were, assuming that God somehow has to give it give explanation for what he's doing. Look at who I am, he says. Job 39, verse 13. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with a pinion and plumage of love, for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. He goes on to talk about the ostrich and, and the, the marvelous way that, that she deals with, with her young and, and how it, it may seem kind of silly and, and, and ridiculous and even self-destructive. But this is the way the world works outside of humanity, whether you're watching it or not, this is going on. The same chapter, verse number 26, is that by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south, is that at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high. On the cliff he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. The, the way that these birds conduct themselves... And not just flying, flying is obvious, but, but the way that an entire ecosystem can cooperate and interact with itself is a, an ongoing testimony to the power of the God who, who orchestrated all of it. I, I don't know if you're a nature person, I don't know if you're an outdoorsy kind of person, but surely anybody can look at a bird or look at squirrels or look at an oak tree or look at any other aspect of creation and gasp in amazement at the power of one who could do such a thing. If I'm able to draw a, a box with three dimensions where it looks like there's a little bit of depth to it, I, I pat myself on the back and congratulate myself how wonderful this kind of thing is. I, I'm not an artist. <laughs> but the idea that God could make the things that prompt the greatest artwork that you can imagine. And we find ourselves with the opportunity to mimic what he has done. What a marvelous thing that is. And what a great example it is to us that we see ourselves gasping in awe at the, the wonder of God, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ. We see a human being in his fullness, everything that a human being ought to be. The first time there was anything even remotely resembling a perfect human being since Adam and Eve. And we look at the face of Jesus Christ and we see the Heavenly Father. And we say, we can become more like that. We can emulate that. We can imitate what God has done, what God is, what God was in the flesh. 
We transform ourselves by the renewing of our mind, not just not our physical body so much as our, our spiritual, our mental, our values. All these things are being made over in the way that God wants us to be. And the more we resemble what God did, the more we resemble what God was in the flesh, the more beautiful our own lives get. And we see God creating in us, working in us, the same kind of majesty, the same kind of poetry, the same kind of magic almost that you see every day in the world that we take so much for granted. We don't think about birds on an ongoing basis. I certainly don't. But if we give ourselves a moment to think about how wonderful God is and how marvelous his creation is, it should inspire us to imitate that, to put that to work in our lives so that we can be more like God wants us to be for our own sake, for the sake of our family, our neighbors, our society, and for the glory of Jesus Christ in our life as well. What a marvelous opportunity it is for us to participate in this plan, to be a small part of his physical creation, and then to choose to become part of his spiritual recreation. That's even more of glory and more of an opportunity for us to glorify the God who made us and made birds and made all the rest of it. What a glorious opportunity it is to stand underneath his sun, breathe in his air, watch his world, and be a small part of it for a small period of time. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast, and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you will find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven. Signing off.